Father, we have so much for which to give praise and thanksgiving. We cannot begin to understand all your ways, but we trust you. Our hearts are genuinely amazed by what has taken place this week. Only you could have orchestrated this seismic shift in direction. We give you thanks and we pray. We pray, Lord, for uh, the courageous justices that you have used this week. We pray that indeed they will reconsider other activist and immoral decisions from the past. This is certainly no time for gloating. It's no time for crowing. In many ways, it's an extremely sad moment for our nation. Father, we're desperate for your merciful hand to guide us. Hostilities are escalating across the land. This decision has been a great victory for life and for social justice. But it has intensified the spiritual war that dominates our culture. Humans... Lord, we are consumed with rebelliousness and resentment and evil. The petulantness and unreasonableness on display is breathtaking. Give us courage and wisdom to navigate these times. Give us faith to trust you and your word, even though the way seems hard and difficult. Use this ruling Father, I pray that you would use this ruling to encourage many who have labored long and hard for righteousness. May it steal the resolve to press forward and stand for righteousness in all of us. Lord, I grieve. I grieve for the millions of lives that have been terminated through the years. We confess and repent of this horrible and grievous sin. While we're grateful for the court's reversal, our hearts are broken that it has taken so long. And we're heartbroken that so many do not see it as just. Father, I am grateful that Christ's blood is sufficient even for this atrocity. I'm grateful that Christ's blood is sufficient to bring healing to many who suffer regret and guilt related to abortion. I pray that their guilt will bring them to the cross for forgiveness, if it hasn't already. I pray that they will experience your renewal and restoration. I pray that, Father, they will learn to lean and rest in your comfort and your care. Guard us from the irrational. Guard us from self-obsession in our thoughts and attitudes and actions. Give wisdom and courage to local state leaders, to the electorate. We cannot know your plans for this nation. Will you use this moment to bring spiritual awakening? Will you bring true brokenness and repentance to our nation? Or will this further expose our hardened and wicked hearts? As was the case with Pharaoh. We plead for your grace to abound. We plead for spiritual awakening. We beg for the gospel to advance among all people of this nation. And may it begin with us. 
animate and empower us as your messengers. Let us not waste this historical moment. Fill us with passion. Fill us with compassion. May we continue to fast and pray for your grace to prevail. Remove the indifference and arrogance we practice toward you. Make us a people who love you with our whole heart, our mind, our soul. Make it so for the sake of the gospel. Make it so for your glorious name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a 2015 interview with the Hungarian composer, George Kurtag, a remarkable confession about his struggle to reconcile his atheism with the beauty of Bach's music appeared. This is what he said. Consciously, I am certainly an atheist, but I do not say it out loud because if I look at Bach, I cannot be an atheist. And I have to accept the way he believed. His music never stops praying. And how can I get closer if I look at him from the outside? I do not believe in the gospels in a literal fashion, but a Bach fugue has the crucifixion in it as the nails are being driven in. His confession makes an important point for God's people, for us to sit up and take notice. God uses our devotion and our worship to display his glory. In our worship, his beauty, his value is reflected for all the world to see. In our commitment to him, the world sees the value that is in the divine Psalm 66 helps us to recognize the impact of our worship. It's divided into two primary sections. The first 12 verses has a congregational feel. There is a congregational worship gathering that's taking place in those first 12 verses. And then in verses 13 through 20, it scales down to an individual commitment to worship. So we want to evaluate this today, examine it, see how it applies to us, how we can learn from it in our own worship and our own lives day by day. So let's begin in this first section. I want you to see in verses 1 through 12, God's gathered people exulting for his glory. It's more than corporate worship. It's corporate worship that extends a call, an invitation. This congregation is gathered to worship and at the same time extending a call to those who don't know God, to all the earth, it says. A call for all the earth to what? To participate, to join in, to join in. And he gives us specific instructions. Shout for joy to God, all the earth, shout for joy. We know this language. It appears in other places in Psalm 98, four, verse four and six says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises with instruments and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, 
the Lord. Psalm 47, one says, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. One commentator described this as an exultant, gladsome emotion. It's an overflowing of something that is welled up inside. It's an imperative to join in this exulting joy, this praise. And the appeal is made to all the earth. This is not a mistake in verse 1. He repeats it again in verse 4. All you who dwell on the earth. The King James renders this as all ye lands. All ye lands. I think it was William Plummer that said that maybe it was better to be translated as you dwellers in the whole earth. We think about man's assignment from God to be fruitful, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. To fill the earth with what? With worshipers of him. With those who honor him, who submit themselves to his glory and honor and to praise his name. Man's task is to lead creation to submit to God's reign and glory. And God's gathered people are expressing, exulting in God's glory here, according to the psalmist. They're worshiping him in spirit and in truth with gladness and great joy, reflecting his glory that others may see, may see the value, the esteem that belongs to God. Sing, sing to God, sing the glory of his name. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. They're celebrating the glory of God's great name, exulting in his vast and majestic reputation, the weight of who he is. Make his praise glorious. In other words, sing to the glory of his praise. Make glorious his name, his praise, his worth. Speak to God, say to him, how awesome are your deeds. This earth is filled with those who ignore, even resent God's greatness. We see it all around us. Human beings are intent upon crediting themselves or something else other than God. The psalmist says even God's enemies must submit to his great power. They come cringing at the sight of his glory, of his greatness cringing, wincing. He's so great, so superior. God's people are to display his glory without fail. Exhort the earth, exhort all the earth to acknowledge God's greatness. Vaughn Roberts, in his little booklet on transgenderism, helps us understand some of the rebelliousness that's going on in our present culture. Here's what he said. He says that the adamant individualism on display in our society is rooted in the Enlightenment when intellectuals asserted the primacy of human reason over divine revelation. It's not likely that many of us have ever read Voltaire or Rousseau, but we have all felt their influence. The Enlightenment was supposed to lead humans to the truth via reason, but it didn't happen. 
You see, the greatest thinkers and intellects cannot agree on basic issues, let alone the more complex. With no confidence in reason, our present culture has rejected the idea of objective truth, at least as far as life's meaning and morality are concerned. This leaves us wrestling with subjective truth. Each person, now get this, each person does what is right in his or her own eyes. Where have you heard that before? Our society is unwilling to accept that there is any external authority over life. In fact, inner feelings and personal desires are considered the supreme authority in most people's lives and certainly in the culture at large. People resent and rebel against any challenge to their individualism. Now, this does not mean that God's people should be silent. We've been instructed to display God's greatness, to acknowledge God's greatness, to proclaim God's greatness, even though the world is not interested in hearing it. Not only does the congregation call on the whole earth to participate in this exaltation of God's glory, they also extend a call for the earth to investigate God's works. Notice what he says. Come and see what God has done. Particularly the psalmist is addressing the nation of Israel. We understand that. Notice the examples that he's using here. How God led them out of bondage into the promised land. But it is applicable to all of us. Even today, as we're gathered here today. Whatever the number of us are. You are here today gathered and our presence together in corporate worship is saying to the world, come and see what God has done. Now, is that the attitude, the thought that went through your mind when you arose this morning and prepared to come? Or was it more of, well, let's see what I get today. This is the way many people, even Christians, are approaching church coming together, but we come together to say to the world, come and see our God. We're pointing to him, exalting him, exalting in his greatness. It's so important for us as we walk, that we walk faithfully with God without wavering because the world's eyes are upon us. God uses our tongues and our actions. He uses our blessings and our sufferings. He uses our lives, our faith in him to make his own greatness known. Come and see what God has done. Come and see what God is doing. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. As we all live in obedience to him, he makes his glory known. You, all the earth, study these things, contemplate these things, understand these things. What things? Well, he tells us God's miraculous deliverance, for one. He turned the sea into dry land. He enabled us to cross over a flooded river into the promised land. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. The children of Israel were brought out of the nation of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, Exodus tells us. God made a path through the sea and they arrived on the other side. They immediately gave themselves to honor, to worshiping, to rejoicing in who God was and his greatness. 
It wasn't intended to be an end in and of itself. It was intended to be a manifestation of the greatness of God. All that he does is intended to point others unto himself. He says, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. He saved the people and prevented the rebellious from prospering. I know we live in a world today that sometimes we wonder where God is, why he allows wickedness to prosper. We can't begin to understand what God is doing. But we trust in who he is and how he works and believe that he is doing that which will honor his name above all others. And that he ultimately does what is good for those whom he loves. He stopped the Jordan River for our crossing. You know, when you read that in Joshua, can I just share what it says? The waters were coming down from above. Again, it was flood season. The Jordan was large over its boundaries. And as the river was coming down from above, it rose up in a heap very far away, even at the city of Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. Did you hear that? The city of Adam. Do you, you get the connection? Are you, is anybody out there? And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The psalmist says, come and see. Come and see what God has done. He didn't pick the dry season when the water was at its lowest point. He picked the time when the waters were gushing forth. The snows were melting and the waters were gushing down through the valley, overflowing their boundaries. And yet God made it dry ground. What things? God's life-preserving power. He kept our soul among the living. He has not let our feet slip. The Bible is filled with numerous protections for God's people. Pharaoh's armies, we just noted, came in mass to destroy Israel. But God prevented it. Prior to Israel becoming a nation, famine threatened Jacob's family. God prevented it. Through 400 years of brutal oppression and slavery and bondage, God prevented their demise. In fact, he prospered them. During the wilderness wanderings, he fed them with manna. He, he provided water from rocks. He protected them from deadly scorpions. From internal strife, through Korah's rebellion and Miriam and Aaron's mutiny and from tangible enemies that assailed them. Come and see. The psalmist says, come and see what our God has done. This is what we celebrate. This is what we honor. This is the one we glorify. God's refining work through adversities. You have tried us as silver 
through idolatry and banishment into exile. Through all the various trials that they encountered, God was fashioning and shaping a people for his own use, a people for his own glory. Malachi 3, 3 says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Isaiah 48, 10, I have tried, I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction, he says. And Job but he knows the way that I take when he has tried me. I shall come out as gold. Come and see. Come and see this. We gather together to worship, to honor this God who does these things, who will not be denied nor mocked. Come and see the one we serve, the one we worship. And God's abundant blessing is upon his people. God has fulfilled his promises. He brought them out to a place of abundance. Even in 400 years of slavery, they multiplied. They didn't regress. They multiplied. So much so that the Egyptians became concerned because the slaves outnumbered them. God blesses his people, not for our own pleasure and comfort, but for his glory, for his glory, for his honor. His blessing in our lives points to his generosity, his grace, his mercy, his goodness. When God's people gather for worship, we point to God. Come and see. Come and see. Not us in our ingenuity, but come and see our great God. And then in verse 13, he makes this shift. It's a remarkable shift, actually. Going from, from a congregational connotation, from congregational language, masses, even all the earth being talked to, to this very personal description. Eight times in eight verses, the personal pronoun I is used. Five times, the person tells us he will do something. Beginning with verse 13, the focus is on one person's commitment to worship. I will come to your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. I will tell what he has done for my soul. I think there's three things that need to be mentioned in conjunction to these verses. First of all, we see it is a personal commitment to worship. Biblical worship is corporate. You're indicative of that today. We gather together. That's God's design, that his people gather together at appropriate times to exalt his name together, to honor him together. But it can't be just corporate. It's critical that we have personal times of worship that are daily it's not a substitute for corporate worship. It's not in place of corporate worship, but it's in conjunction with per, uh, corporate worship. Without personal worship, your corporate worship will fall flat. It'll be dry and dead. Personal time of the Lord prepares us. It strengthens us for the gathering of the mass. Personal time, including prayer, 
reading, meditating upon God's word, studying his word, listening as he stirs the coals of vibrancy in our souls. And when we come together, then that should all pour out. Come and see. Come and see what God is doing, what God has done in my life, in our lives together. It requires a personal commitment and devotion to the Lord. But notice also these verses tell us that that it's focused upon, it's centered upon sacrifice. Sacrifice is key here, is it not? It's mentioned three times and the mentions are similar and yet there appears to be distinctions between them. He says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Now, maybe it's just me, but I think the distinctions there are important. We see times, like we did last week in a passage, where the same words were used over and over and over like a refrain in a song, exactly as they were previously. These are repeats, but they're not the same. What's he telling us? Well, I think simply looking at this, I come into your house with burnt offerings. We know that a burnt offering was an utter destruction of the animal. Complete destruction. Nothing left except the skin. Everything was, everything was exhausted. It's utter destruction. Complete. Complete to the nth degree. Nothing. Nothing withheld. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. It was always stipulated. It was always important that when you brought an animal, that it should be of exceptional quality. It should be the best, perfect, a perfect sacrifice. Not second best, not something you're going to get rid of anyway, but it had to be first fruits, the best fruits. Offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals, not the scrawny one. I will make an offering of bulls and goats, plural. Speaks of abundance, not minimalist. Not coming with just the meager, satisfying some arbitrary standard that says this is what God requires of me, but coming with plenty, a generous sacrifice. The burnt offering was the most common of all sacrifices. It was performed every morning and evening, often more on holy days. It consisted of bulls, sheep, goats, pigeons, turtle doves. And as a rule, a sacrificial animal had to be a perfect male specimen. The official services required a one-year-old lamb most often, but sometimes rams or bulls were preferred. The whole animal was burned on the altar, excluding the skin. The burnt offering, or ola, ola, means ascending. You know, in my neighborhood, I can always tell when somebody's grilling, can't you? And I, I try to return the favor when I get a chance. You, know, you can smell it a street or two away, can't you? The meat that's cooking, and it smells so good. It always smells so good. These offerings were brought in and, and the sacrifice was performed. The, the uh, person would choose 
some, something out of a flock, a, a lamb, let's say, out of a flock and bring it, the best that he had. And he would bring it to just outside the tent of meeting. And there he would put his hand, lay his hand on the head. And he would explain why he was bringing the sacrifice, including confession of sin. And in God's way of doing things, the sin, the confession was imputed to the lamb. The, the sin would be transferred to the lamb. And then, you know, we have this idea that the priest then would butcher the animal. But Leviticus says that the one bringing the sacrifice had the responsibility of killing his own sacrifice. So he would kill the animal and the priest would catch the blood in a vessel of some sort and then splash the blood on the sides of the altar as evidence of life given. But then the sacrificer would take the animal and be responsible to wash it and prepare it and then cut it up into pieces, taking the skin, removing the skin. And then, then the priest, and only then the priest, would lay the pieces on the altar over the flame where it would be completely engulfed and burned to where there was nothing left. And the aroma, the aroma of the sacrifice wafted it up to God and was pleasing because it was in obedience to his prescribed method for approaching him. But the key thing is that the sacrificer had to undergo all this himself. And, and you know what, what you walk away from that with is that the one who was offering the sacrifice had a true picture of the high cost of sin. The high cost of the penalty for sin. It wasn't something you could just shuffle off to someone else and turn and go your own way. Someone would take care of it for you. And worship wasn't just coming and sitting in a nice, comfortable pew and listening to someone teach or preach. There was participation involved. This sacrifice was brought and engaged in with the sacrificer, with the offenders, with the guilty person's own hands. And they understood that because of what was going on with this animal, this is what they deserved. This is what should have been applied to me. But this animal has taken my guilt, has taken my shame, has taken my punishment so that I can go free. And so it had a whole different had a whole entirely different perspective, idea. It was a moving occasion. C.F. Kyle said, burnt offerings expresses the complete surrender to the Lord, consecration to a course of life pleasing to God. Gordon Wenham said that the burnt offering's main function was to atone for man's sin by propitiating God's wrath. In the immolation of the animal, most commonly a lamb, God's judgment against human sin was symbolized and the animal suffered in man's place. The worshiper acknowledged his guilt and responsibility for his sins by pressing his hand on the animal's head and confessing his sin. The lamb was accepted as the ransom price for the guilty man. The daily use of the sacrifice and the worship of the temple and tabernacle was a constant reminder of man's sinfulness and God's holiness. 
So were its occasional usages after sickness, childbirth, and vows. In bringing a sacrifice, a man acknowledged his sinfulness and guilt. He also publicly confessed his faith in the Lord, his thankfulness for his past blessings, and his resolve to live according to God's holy will all the days of his life. So coming in worship centered around sacrifice. But it does something even better. It points forward to Christ as the offering, the perfect sacrifice, a final and perfect offering in Christ. Thankfully, the I wills of the Old Testament give way to the he dids of the New Testament. The Son of Man, Mark writes, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The first Peter you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers and with perishable, not with perishable things such as silver or gold or lambs, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. John the Baptist announced it clearly when he first laid eyes on Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you indulge me? I want to read several verses from Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. Because it says so well what we struggle sometimes to say. Hebrews 9, beginning with verse 24. And then we'll move down through verse 14 of chapter 10. This is another place that you should have earmarked in your Bible. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest stands daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest never sat down. His work was never finished. He continued to go back because there was always another lamb, another bull to offer as a sacrifice. But when Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin and resurrected from the dead and ascended back to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed what God had assigned for him to do to secure redemption. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is the final perfect sacrifice that propitiates God's wrath. What animals could not do, could never do, he did once and for all. I'm grateful for the picture we see here in Psalm 66. The worshiper going to the temple to offer sacrifice. It reminds us of this vast, incredibly vast separation between us and God. It reminds us of the high cost of sin. It reminds us that we're hopeless on our own. But Christ has come to make atonement. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. The New Testament uses this imagery of the burnt offering, not only pointing to Jesus, but also encouraging us in our Christian service. Hebrews 13 15 and 16 says, through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Philippians 4, 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2 speaks about this sacrifice, but it does so in a radical fashion. When we think about sacrifice, you think about what? You think about death, right? Death. The burnt offering was the, was the complete destruction of life. Dying. The burnt offering completely destroyed the animal. But listen to what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Isn't that a paradox? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A living sacrifice. There's no longer death required for our reconciliation with God. We no longer die, but we can 
live for him because he has died for us. We live for him in a way that honors and glorifies him. Wenham, Gordon Wenham again says, in that the only burnt offering that can atone for sin has been made by Christ, Christians no longer have to bring their lambs to the altar to receive forgiveness of sins, but bringing a sacrifice involved praising God for his grace and declaring one's intention to love God and keep his commandments. Now that animal sacrifice is obsolete, praise and good works by themselves constitute the proper sacrifices expected of a Christian. We offer ourselves. We offer our works not to earn forgiveness and reconciliation. We give sacrificially for the glory of God because we are reconciled to him. We do it not in our feeble and inefficient, insufficient strength, but we do it by his spirit, which dwells within us and empowers us in Christ, not in the I wills, but in his finished work. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I just love that line. That should be, that should be the mission statement of every life in here. If you're a professing Christian today, if you claim a relationship with God based upon Christ's sacrificial work, his atoning work, this should be the statement that describes your life, day in and day out. I will tell you what he has done for my soul. The basis for our worship is always gratitude and thanksgiving. And the object of our worship is we proclaim his gospel to all we encounter. We proclaim it, we live it, we show it. I cried out to him, he says. I confessed high praise, acknowledged his holiness and perfect standard. If I had cherished or protected my rebellion, my sin, he would not have listened to my prayer and I would perish in my sin. But <laughs> truly God has listened. He has attended to my prayer. He has responded, he has acted, he has applied the blood of the Lamb of God to my account once and for all. He has redeemed me by his blood. That's good news. That's great news. Come and see what he has done for my soul. What about you? Do you have a story to tell? Is your story about exploits and experiences in and through this world? Is your story about comforts and pleasures this world affords you? Is your story about idols in your life? Think about the stories we tell day in and day out. But do you have a story of what God has done in your soul? Do you have a story of what God is doing in your soul? Do you have a story about your daily walk and fellowship with God. What preoccupies our minds and our hearts? We all want a story of what God is doing in our soul. This is what we pursue. This is what we seek by his grace and through his power and to be faithfully telling that story is your personal worship pointing others to Christ.
Is our corporate worship reflecting God's greatness in this world? Is our worship, our corporate worship, saying and challenging a lost world outside these walls? Come and see. Come and see this great God, Yahweh. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are. For your goodness in our lives. We thank you. We thank you for Christ, for the hope that is ours because of what Christ has done for us. That in spite of our sin, you have made a path where we can be forgiven and reconciled to you. I pray that Lord, each of us in this room knows that path, has that relationship, that personal relationship with you. And that if not, today would be the day of salvation. That your spirit, even now, would compel and draw that one to yourself. To throw themselves upon your mercy seat and to plead for forgiveness and restoration. Lord, make it so. Use us, Lord, to be a testimony of your greatness and your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.